Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. This is episode number 44 of the Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking about innovation. So, Seth, what do you think of when you hear the word innovation? What comes to mind? I think about scientists in a think tank. I think about presidents giving big speeches about how Americans need to innovate to expand the economy and to take their place as the number one producers in the world. What do you think about, Justin? Yeah, that's typically what we hear when we hear our politicians talking about the ideas of innovation and we hear about how our economy needs to innovate faster and faster to keep up with the rest of the world or to become the economy that sells everything to the rest of the world. And when I think about innovation, I think of the model of innovation where there's somebody researching in a lab and they develop something and they turn it into a patent and then it spins off and then venture capitalists come along and invest in it and put money into it. And then it grows bigger and bigger until that company gets bought out by a bigger company. And then it becomes Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft is a big innovation out of somebody's garage. Yeah, exactly. You just started in a garage, a bunch of guys you know, working really hard. And through a combination of technology and work and also business savvy and a lot of other things, Microsoft grew into a really big company. But there's actually different models of innovation. And innovation has been one of the core aspects of our species for a really long time. And so that's why we are speaking with Sander Fonderloo today about the ideas of innovation throughout our history as a species and how the models of innovation that we've typically used could apply in an energy scarce and resource scarce world and what he really sees moving forward with ideas of innovation. The human experience has been one big innovation after another. I mean, we started off with rock tools, then we moved to metal tools, then we moved to steam power tools, and you end up with nuclear-powered submarines going across the globe with super-powered airplanes. So let's jump into the episode and see how these ideas of innovation have really affected human society and have brought us to where we are to this day. Since you are the director of the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University, we're very interested in your definition of sustainability. How would you define it? Everybody defines this differently. And I don't make a very specific definition. I basically think sustainability is a mindset that tries and limits to the possible use of natural resources, pollution of the environment, 
and all those things that bring us close to the limits of what the Earth system can tolerate. That's one way to define it. Another way to define it is the more classical Brundtland way, and it's something like continuing our society in such a way that future generations can also do that. So if you could, we'd like to step into some broad questions. If you could walk us through a little bit the process of human evolution and maybe talk a little bit about the next few steps of evolution that you foresee. Okay, well, you may get a longer answer than you bargained for, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> okay. Basically, what I've looked at in recent years is the last, let's say, two and a half million years of human evolution and how that relates to human inventiveness, to the complexity of human society, and also to the use of environmental resources. And where it all starts out is with primates. Not that I posit any specific relationship between primates and humans, but I think primates are a good starting point from the point of view of getting a sense of what the cognition of primates actually can do. Primates can cognize in their short-term working memory, which is basically the part of the memory that links things as you are doing them, can cognize about three dimensions. That is, they can crack nuts, and in order to do that, they need a hammer, they need a nut, and they need an anvil. And they can keep all of those three together and actually actively crack nuts. Now, 25% of chimpanzees can't do that. So that leads us to think that we can say that it's sort of cognitive capacity of three plus or minus one dimension. Now, if you look on the other end, and I can't go into the arguments for this, but they're quite extensive, you can argue that humans can actually handle more or less seven dimensions. And that gives the humans the possibility, to, of course, to make much more complex sort of decisions and have also much more complex evolution of how they deal with the environment. The interesting thing about all of this is that there are two stages in that in order to reach that point of seven plus or minus two and the current very innovative kind of societies. And the first stage is basically constrained biologically. It is the changes in the brain that ultimately over close to two million years create human brains that are able to deal with seven plus or minus two dimensions. That point is reached roughly somewhere between 200,000 and 50,000 years ago. From that moment on, our biological capacity to deal with problems has not changed. But our social capacity has hugely changed. Once we were able to deal with seven dimensions, we started dealing with relatively complex problems. Now, you know that complex problems also bring about complex, unexpected consequences. And so what you get from that moment onward is a sort of a feedback loop between people solving problems and then by solving them, generating other problems and then having to solve those other problems, and those are complex problems. So there is a feedback loop between the complexity of thinking that is possible the number of people that are involved, because no individual can anymore deal with all of those complex solutions all by themselves, and the amount of energy that the society requires to actually stay alive. Well, that feedback loop spins and begins to become really, really important around about 50,000 years ago. 
from that moment on, we see that people make much more complicated artifacts, that they implement much more complicated techniques, that they begin to live in larger groups together, and which is particularly the case after about 10,000 years ago, when people start living in villages and no longer in bands that roam around the countryside. By that point also, they have a different attitude to risk, because they diminish the daily risks by actually investing in the environment, by clearing forests, making fields, seeding those fields, and waiting a number of months to actually get a result out of that. So our whole attitude to the environment actually changes from that perspective. You're talking about being able to expect long-term changes in the environment? Around 10,000 years ago, I don't think it is that long-term, but at least it's a year or more. Herding is actually expectations over three or four years before you have a good herd. So rather than the instantaneous, which a hunter has or a gathering person has, that goes around the countryside and simply plucks what is really, whether it's by shooting an animal or plucking a fruit or something like that, you now get people actually investing in the environment. And to do that, they do it because they feel that that gives a more dependable result. But at the same time, of course, it means a lot of extra work. It also means that you shift the risks from short-term seasonal risks to somewhat longer-term risks. And so the total relationship between humans and their environment at that moment starts fundamentally changing. And I think that is the starting point of an evolution that has led us through the beginnings of urbanism to actually the beginnings of much more complex societies, which are stratified, which in the case of empires comprise the people who speak different languages and so on and so forth. And that ultimately, let's now move about another 8,000 years up to close to the present, let's say about 200 years ago, has led us to a situation where we have colonial empires and things like that. So we have created what is for ourselves a really, really complex system. Something fundamental, again, changes with the Industrial Revolution. Up to the Industrial Revolution, the potential was offered by information processing, by this feedback between problems, people, and so on and so forth. But the real constraint was energy, because we didn't have anything except for human, animal, wind, and water energy. Around 200 years ago, we get a completely different situation because we start using fossil fuel. That basically means that our energy constraint is completely lifted with time. And that then means, of course, that our innovativeness can go faster and faster and faster. And that at one point, we become dependent on that innovativeness to keep our societies going. You know very well that nowadays, the big factor by which we measure success is increase in GDP. Well, increase in GDP is an increase in value that is generated by faster and faster innovation in more and more different domains and is more and more costly in energy. So we have come to a dilemma in the present where now that we begin to see that fossil energy may not be available forever and we don't have another solution to deal with the energy problem, and at the same time we have created such a complicated and big society through even globalization that we are in a squeeze about what to do next. If we can't find a solution for the energy problem, we will probably have to reduce our wealth, 
reduce a lot of the things that we do to a simpler way of living, a less centralized way of living in the sense that we will have to do away with large networks and things like that. We will become less mobile and things like that. So that dilemma is the dilemma that we're currently facing in our society. And that dilemma has arisen because of our reliance on innovation is what you're saying? What I'm saying is, yes, it has risen out of, let's say, the unintended consequences of that feedback loop that started, let's say, 50,000 years ago, where we began using more and more people to solve more and more complex problems, to generate even more complex problems, then get even more people together, and so get a bigger and bigger society that was more and more complex. And then more recently, that conquered the constraint of energy so that all of that process, that feedback loop, started accelerating to a crazy point. And that is what we see nowadays. We have faster and faster evolution of our society. And you see that with the whole potential and, and the fact that there are so many researchers, that there are more and more researchers per head of the population over the last 200 years. Push innovation. So the fact that it takes more and more researchers to make any kind of scientific breakthrough nowadays, does that point to the fact that all the low-hanging fruit has been picked and now to make any kind of meaningful technological breakthrough, you have to have a huge team of international scientists and collaborators to make any kind of work that's, that's meaningful? That's a very interesting question. And I'll try and answer that, but it is, in my mind, a little bit different. And I'm going to go back to the fact that, well, what defines at a certain point how people do things? That definition is not what they know how to do. The perimeter of what they know how to do is defined by what they've never thought about, the ideas they've never had. And so it's a culture, a society, grows out of a starting point by working at the boundaries of that knowledge and expanding that knowledge. But the whole cluster of that knowledge stays related. So it would seem that in theory, at least, you could start inventing in a completely different domain that nobody has ever thought about, and you could get that innovation going further and further. That is in very great contrast to what you're saying, which I think what you're saying is true for those technologies and those things that in our society are established things. But what I'm also arguing is that I think we could innovate at the edges between those areas where we have a lot of knowledge and those areas where we have no knowledge at all. But of course, the difficulty is that if you have no knowledge about them at all, you've got to find a starting point. And so I do believe that innovations come in cascades. As soon as somebody somewhere has found a starting point in the area that has never been thought about, you actually get a cascade of innovations. A very good example that a colleague of mine in Italy has worked about is the art of printing books. Once people know how to print books, then they start printing all kinds of other things. That starts changing the behavior in society. Literacy becomes much more important. At a certain point, people want pocketbooks. So they start producing books in octavo, which you can literally put in your pocket. So suddenly, books also start having a different role, not only education, but also diversion. And so you can see like that how all of that develops. Another very good example that is actually quite well known is that of the whole evolution from the telephone to the television, the cell phone, the iPad, the iPod, and what have you. Every time you have a basic technology 
you apply that technology, that technology comes up against uses that it's never conceived. So you start changing the technology to meet those kinds of uses. That then gets to be another feedback loop because that gets you into yet other kinds of technologies and that creates other functions in society. How do we go about finding those areas that we haven't innovated in that show the greatest areas for innovation? Because it's easy to sit from where we're at now and look back at, say, the transistor and say, wow, you know, as soon as we got the transistor, we just expanded and developed that into our modern silicon technologies that we have today. But now sitting here looking at the future, we can see all of these trends converging and see the issues, but it's hard to know exactly where to go. And building on that, if we can't find those areas, what does it mean if innovation slows down? I very much agree. And I don't have a a solution, but at least I have a contribution, I think, to that debate. What is really, really interesting is that our society has looked at innovation as an economic phenomenon. It has looked at what the conditions for innovation are and what the results of innovation are. But our society has rarely looked at the actual process of innovation. Why? Well, we live in a society that has a very reductionist scientific attitude. And of course, it is impossible to study creativity with a reductionist science. So for a very long time, our scientists have basically said, well, creativity is something we can't study. It's a black box. That, I think, is a mistake. Once you start looking at innovation as happening in a network, and in a network that has people in it, materials, demands, functions, artifacts, ways of doing things, I think you can actually begin to much more closely, not with total precision, but you can begin to pinpoint where innovations are easy and where innovations are much less easy. And so I would argue that if we focus more of our research on a really scientific understanding of how invention happens and what the conditions are for transforming an invention in an innovation, that means getting it widely known and widely accepted in society, I think we could probably save ourselves a lot of energy that is spent on innovating or attempting to innovate in areas where there is very little chance of success and actually focus that energy on areas where there is a much better chance for success. It doesn't mean that I've solved your problem, but it may be one way in which you can begin to approach it. Uh, Going off of that, you talk about innovation happening through networks. Yeah. And people thinking about it as an economic phenomenon. But on the other side of that, it only happens when you have these great brains. You know, an Einstein doesn't come along every day. As Steve Jobs, who invents an iPod and a whole industry of mobile devices, doesn't come along every day. And given that, these people do stand on the shoulders of giants and everyone's building on each other. Everyone's going along. But it does take that one individual to actually make that breakthrough. How does the human genius factor play into this kind of uh, that's innovation? That's really, really interesting question. There's a, a French biologist by the name of Jacob who has basically argued that technical evolution, but also biological evolution in his case, but I can't talk about that, is actually an interaction between chance and necessity. That there are moments in which process, that is what the collective does, is necessary to get further. And there are other moments when the individual is necessary to get further. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it basically means that, yes, okay, Einstein was a genius. But Einstein could not have done what he did 
unless the science he started working in had actually achieved a particular point where an innovation was actually possible and likely. And so I see innovation in that sense as an interaction between the collective and the individual. The individual can do it at certain points and make the difference, but at other points, no individual is going to make a difference. Process, that is, the collective, will actually keep pushing and the individual doesn't get recognized. I'll give you an archaeological example. We know, for example, that iron was first worked about a thousand years earlier than it became popular in Europe. So the question then is, okay, there was an individual, and we have objects that that individual made, although we don't know who it is, who actually worked iron. Why was that not used earlier as an invention? And then you look at the structure of society, and you realize that the elites of the moment was very difficult for them to maintain their elite status. One of the few ways they could do it is by controlling access to bronze, which was the wealth object at the time. It so turns out that bronze, copper ore, is found in very few places. So if you are an elite and you have assured yourself of a source of copper, then you can sort of live on that for a very long time. Iron is found everywhere in Europe. So what limited the use of iron was that people didn't have the knowledge how to work it. That knowledge was available very locally with a few people, but was not allowed to spread. Iron working spread as a technology when the society had fundamentally changed and when the old power bases of the elites in the Bronze Age had actually lost their power. Then suddenly society is ready for iron to be used. You see what I mean? There is an interaction there between the collective process that creates the opportunity and the individual that grabs the opportunity and does it. So it seems to me then that it's advertising that drives innovation. In our modern world, yes. And this is another fundamental difference that came about in sort of the 1920s, maybe a little bit earlier. Until then, and certainly before the Industrial Revolution, the acceptance of inventions was determined by need, by pre-existing need. Once you have the complex technologies that the Industrial Revolution brought, you can actually get innovation from the supply side. That is, somebody invents something, somebody else grabs it, makes a lot of publicity, and creates the need for it. So the process starts working the other way around. It's no longer we have inventions and they only get accepted if there is a need that is generated by society endogenously, but we now get a situation in which that need is generated deliberately after an invention has been made. So we move essentially from a demand side development of innovations to a supply side of innovations. And you were speaking a moment ago about iron technology not necessarily being in the interest of the elites. And so that's one of the major reasons why it didn't disseminate, even though the technology and the know-how was there. Is that dynamic any different now that we live in an information society where we have computers and technological devices that can transmit ways of doing things at the click of a mouse? That is a really interesting question. And I don't think we can see yet how the information society is going to change all of that pattern. Because don't forget, 
we have the benefit of hindsight on all those millions of years, and we have even the benefit of hindsight on the Industrial Revolution and how that changed our society. But we don't yet have a fundamental hindsight on how the Information Revolution is changing our society. I do believe, purely intuitively, that indeed all those things will change very drastically as our information starts changing. But there are different sides to the new way of dealing with innovation, uh, with uh, information. You know, if you are in touch with people, if you're working together as a team of innovators, you communicate in lots of different ways and you communicate with things that go wrong, that go right, you have emotions, you communicate through your eyes, your eye contact, you communicate to your body language, you have a kind of interaction that is many more multidimensional than you have over the web, for example. And so as long as, and this is a, the real but here, as long as the information exchange that we have, which is much more than it used to be, but it's still not complete, is actually incomplete, we have a different situation. Ultimately, I expect that everybody will be able to basically communicate fully over every which means by computer. By that point, we get a very, very different situation because then we get networks that we don't know that they're there. They can communicate with the same intensity as when people see each other. So you can actually expect all kinds of other phenomena to start happening. Would that enable innovation across long distances in a way that we're used to? I would expect so. I mean, even if you nowadays look at some of the very sophisticated software that makes engineers at Ford in Germany, in Japan, in China, and in the United States work together to actually create a car, I think we're getting there, but we're not fully there yet. We are there now for those technologies that we already know, because then we can adapt the software to the technology. We're not there yet for innovation in domains that we don't know, because then we don't have the adapted software. I'm distinguishing between invention and innovation. Invention for me is getting the bright idea, making the first prototype. Innovation is spreading it out into the world. And I think there something has fundamentally changed in those last three centuries, and in particular in the last century in which we saw the explosion that Pam Madsen has mentioned at the start. And that is that innovation is no longer demand-driven. Innovation has become supply-driven. That is, in that process, we now innovate in every which direction, in every which way, simply for the sake of innovating, because it creates value. And as in creating value, we keep our social system more or less intact. I've been struck over the last 10, 15 years by the difficulty of putting together the two terms sustainability and innovation. In a lot of our discussions, we essentially assume that innovation is going to lead us 
out of the sustainability dilemma. Yet from my longer term perspective, and for me 200,000 years isn't very much, I actually note that it is innovation that has got us in trouble. Because it is the innovation over the last three centuries, rampant innovation in every which direction, that has exhausted the resources, that has transformed the environment, and that has ultimately brought us to the realization where we are now that this cannot go on any longer. We've been on this earth for, let's say, three million years with our ancestors and everybody else. As modern human beings, we've been here, let's say, 200,000 years. Yet why is it that it took so long for this innovation to take off? We didn't physically change that much in that period. What have we done to suddenly, in the last maybe 6,000 years, but particularly in the last 300 years, to get into such an acceleration of our impact on the environment and where we're actually going and our impact on ourselves, like the population dilemma. And what one can now do as a combination of looking at the technologies of the past and how they evolved, combined with some of the cognitive science that has been developing, some of the science of how our brain has changed, we can basically argue that around, let's say maybe at most 100,000 years ago, we had the same cranial capacity and the same capacity to combine, let's say, between seven and nine different sources of information in whatever we would be doing. What I'm arguing with that is that we are limited in the complexity that we can see as individuals or as a society. Now, by the point that we got there, let's say 50,000 years ago, we started developing a huge set of intellectual tools, all the ways in which we now think, our abstractions, our concepts, our relationships, and so on and so forth. And that has something that has been taking off at an exponential combinatorial rate. And that is one of the reasons we got where we are at this particular point. Because the more ideas you have, the more ideas, in a way, you can generate. So that explains sort of the length of that trajectory before we started accelerating this. Now, why did it go so fast? Well, I would argue, and I've in another, on other occasions talked about this at some more length than I have here, that essentially between about 10,000 BC and about 300 years ago, we developed the mastery of matter, the mastery of energy, and we are now beginning to develop the mastery of innovation. As we are doing those three things, we're beginning to actually get a grasp on the main elements, the main commodities of what the world is all about. And that has enabled, I think, us to do this. Now, in that process, our society has become hooked on innovation. After the last three centuries, we can no longer even think about a society and keeping it together without innovating, and without innovating faster and faster and faster. One of my colleagues, under some protest, has called this the world's largest Ponzi scheme. In the sense that we can never stop this anymore in our current social situation. Freedom is what you do with war. We've always been done to you. Freedom 
You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Sandra Fonderloo about innovation and society. So does this increased technology and communication rearrange every kind of governmental system that we've ever known? Getting rid of nationalism, getting rid of any kind of barriers that separate people because, I mean, language becomes a non-issue when you have communication technology that can jump that. What is a world that has that kind of instantaneous technology where it's totally integrated into society look like? Well, look, this is another really fascinating issue where I can only give you a sort of an intuitive answer. We are both animals and humans, and animals in the positive sense. That means we also have emotions. We have needs. And I think one of the really interesting and important issues in this whole domain is the identity. If you have a small group, you can all be part of the group. If the group exceeds a certain size, then you generally find that that group falls apart in subgroups. Those subgroups start distinguishing each themselves from each other and start being in competition with each other. The size of those groups and that phenomenon can vary. It goes across all scales. But because we will never be able to communicate with everybody in the world at the same time and with the same intensity, simply because there are too many people, even if the communication means are there, we will simply start distinguishing ourselves. If you look at a place like Second Life, what you see there is that very quickly, actually, communities start distinguishing themselves from each other. And so that then raises, well, what makes these people distinguish themselves? I think in part it is because they communicate more frequently, they have a shared language and things like that. But there is also ideology, there is religion, there is a lot of other identifiers that can lead to those kinds of identity issues. We may have to go a long, long way into the future before those things don't play a role anymore. And therefore, I don't think we will very easily, immediately step over things like nationalism, sort of difficult uh, issues in religion or in other ways that distinguish us from each other. I think that is a long-term trend that is not going to be fundamentally changed so quickly by information technology, although what it will do, the information technology, it will change the networks. And so it will change the groups that belong together. You already see that. People now on Facebook consider themselves friends, whereas they would never have done that until now. But that doesn't mean that the distinction between being part of a friend group and not being part of it is simply wiped out. We've been talking about some of the geographical limitations to information flow and some of the ways that innovation and technology are helping us to bridge that. So we wanted to ask about the ways in which these information technology systems and these systems of innovation that we're enabling through these technologies are riding on complex flows of energy and materials. And so as these means of communicating grow in use, they're using more energy and more resources to maintain the server farms or you know, actually building that iPad. And so what happens as the amount of energy and the amount of materials that's used in these networks increases? Well, that is another of the fundamental questions. And I just read a really interesting book written by two improbable people to actually ever write a book together. One of them is a colleague archaeologist by the name of Joseph Tainter, 
who has been interested for a long, long years, since his very first book in 1988, in why societies collapse. And the other is a petroleum engineer by the name of Patsik. And they take the Macondo disaster and look at that disaster as the result of a failure that is due to the complexity of the technology. But then they go further. And then they actually use the same approach to our society in general and outline how, as we make things more complex, and therefore the unintended consequences of our actions also become more complex, they demand more and more energy for that society to stay intact. And I don't know whether you know anything about return on investment in the energy industry, but in the beginnings of the petroleum industry, for every, let's say, gallon of petroleum that you invested in getting petroleum, you would get a hundredfold yield. Now the yield is down to the tens, which basically means that we now invest more and more to get less and less out of it. And so, yes, I do believe that energy is finite unless we find other sources. And I do believe that that ultimately means that there is a big threat to the coherence of our society from that perspective. Because if we don't have the energy anymore, how can we maintain the infrastructure? I'll give you another figure. A human being, just to live, needs about 100 watts of energy. In America, nowadays, every human being uses 10,000 watts of energy. Well, those 9,900 actually go in our infrastructure, in our communications, in our roads, in our houses, in everything that we do on the land. If we don't have that energy anymore, then we can't do those activities anymore. And so that basically doesn't mean that the environment is ruined. It means that our society can't function anymore. And that is the ultimate problem of sustainability. It is not the question whether we ruin the environment. The environment will be there long after we're gone. The real issue is, can we keep our society functioning the way it is? 10,000 watts of energy per human? Yeah, in the, in the United it, States. Sorry, that's kind of like a car. You know how a car, most of the energy in the moving of a car is just to move the whole weight of the automobile itself. That's right. The energy to move cars is part of this. So that those 10,000 watts are also consumed by transport. Of course they are. Right. As this energy continues to decrease and the availability and cheapness of this energy continues to decrease, what does that mean for innovation and for society? Does the trend towards more humans moving towards urban centers become a non-reality? Does that become something that we can't have anymore? It's a really interesting issue from a different perspective. If you look at the current demographic makeup, People tell me, and this is not my specialism, but I sort of believe them, that there are two tendencies why people will move more and more into more condensed cities. One of them is older people who actually need more and more facilities and have not the capacity to drive long distances and who therefore will start crowding around where those facilities actually are that is increasing urban populations. The other one is young people. After the war, that those generations, in this country at least, were very much into sort of getting the luxury of suburbia. That is no longer the case. More and more young people are actually also moving into larger and more condensed cities. Now, the interesting thing with that is that cities are actually the core of the innovation in our world system. And why is that? Because in a city, because so many people meet and communicate, any innovation will be exposed 
to many more different viewpoints and perspectives and dimensions than if you innovate in a very small rural community. And so cities actually work like sort of an, an innovation engine. And there's very interesting work that has been done in the Santa Fe Institute in a project that I was part of with a number of Europeans to actually demonstrate that. Because what we see, if you scale cities, you see that energy scales with the size of cities below one. It sublinearly scales. Every facility and service, services in general, scale as one. They're simply dependent on the total number of people. You need so many bakeries for so many people. But innovation actually scales super linearly. It increases faster with the size of cities than that size itself. And that is a very nice demonstration of the fact that a lot of what drives our system and why urban development and urbanization are such a dominant part of our culture is because that actually creates those innovations. So does that trend reverse as this energy scarcity that Tainter and Patsik wrote about takes place? Well, that is the question. Of course, when a system comes to the point where there is no further upside to the system, then it can very easily decline. But it still is open whether we will at some point invent sources of energy that will actually allow us to keep going for a long time. If we don't, then I do believe that we will see a disintegration of society, yes. I hear from a lot of people who tell me that in many ways Manhattan is one of the most sustainable places on the planet because it packs so many people into such a dense area. What do yep. you think on that? Well, I mean, from an energy perspective, you need to balance, and I don't know how that balance comes out because I've never done those figures, but you need to, to balance the fact that on the one hand, yes, people use public transportation and go on foot and so on, but on the other hand, you have these very tall buildings, and I don't know what that might cost in extra energy because you have to take the whole life cycle in account. You can't simply look at the current state. So what does it do to construct those buildings? That is also part of this equation. And I just don't know. Right. So being an archaeologist, you studied the ways that past civilizations have developed and have grown. And I'm wondering that as we look at this energy situation and you've looked at all of these different ancient technologies that civilizations have used, could there be ancient technologies that would start being used again by our modern civilization simply because they use less energy than our modern technological infrastructure? I think that'd be very difficult, and that is basically because we are now in a situation with such complex systems that the low energy yields of those prehistoric and, and archaeological systems can simply not respond to the complexity of our current society. The yields of those energy systems are never of the order of 10,000 per capita. So I think we really need to invent new technologies. What we can do is we can, of course, save a lot of energy use. We are incredibly wasteful with energy use. To give you one example, one of the biggest challenges of the next 50 years is suppose that the developing world wants to attain the same level of wealth and comfort that we have here. That would mean it would start using up to 10,000 watts as well, whereas many of these people now use maybe 100 or 200 or 300. So then the question is, well, how do you do that? One thing that I think is a really important point there is that we have to avoid start building huge nuclear or other generating plants and then huge networks 
along which that energy goes, which, by the way, also loses a lot of the energy, but that's another story. And basically decentralize energy generation by giving everybody solar panels or wind or things like that. That in itself would mean that the curve by which the increase of energy use in a place like Africa goes up is a much lower curve than if you start building very large networks and things like that. So I'm going to take you back to an earlier part of our conversation where we were talking about the communication technology. As humans develop more and more communication technology and they develop ways to integrate that technology into their own biology, I've been reading a lot of science fiction. And in the stories, they talk about brain augmentation, ways to speed the brain up and just move thought processes faster. But as a result of moving thought processes faster, time, relative time kind of slows down. How does our species understand time right now? And how can kind of technology augmentation of our brains really affect the way our species interacts and interacts with the planet in general? Okay. Let me first say that I'm a skeptic about those kinds of brain augmentations and things like that. I don't believe that'll come about very soon. I think what may come about is a better integration between human information processing and computerized information processing. But I'm not sure that that will be by an augmentation of the capabilities of the brain. So, but that aside, I want to get, take your theoretical point and basically say, okay, we can increase the speed of innovation. We can thereby increase the speed of information processing. What I don't agree with is that that would slow down time. Because I think our experience of time, and I'm not talking about the extraction of time, but our, our experience of time is actually information impulses per unit. And so the more we process information, the faster time seems to go. As a follow-up to that, though, you could argue that Google and the Internet technology really has augmented our brains, even if it hasn't physically okay. you know, no, augmented our brains. I agree. That is why I said a better match between human information processing and mechanical information processing or elect electromechanical information processing, that is definitely a possibility. I'm not ruling that out. But when you first said it, it was sort of like brain augmentations and things like that. And right. That's a skeptic. I feel like it's similar, though. I feel like it's something that it's just like a next step. It is similar, but not the same. And I think that is a fundamental distinction here. Mm -hmm. I think the acceleration is similar, but I don't see us yet for the foreseeable time to actually doctor with our brains that we can actually do it with our brains. The biological technology is extremely complex to be able to do something like that. And right. we're nowhere close to being able to actually biologically augment that's that's all i'm trying to say right right let's take yeah. it a different direction then how does technology in general affect the way that humans interact with the world you mentioned the beginning a rock and a nut as the way that humans have developed their brains how does technology in general change the way that humanity develops okay that is where i'm going back to the distinction i made in that part of the story between the biological increase in short-term working memory and what happened after I think for the first two million years or so, what is happening is that people are little by little beginning to be able to conceive more complex ways of dealing with raw materials. And one of the interesting things that is a real example that we can follow in detail when we study stone tools through the long term of prehistory is that it takes about that time for people to start realizing that stone tools have three dimensions. From the very start, 
people evidently interact with stones and those stones have three dimensions. But the conceptualization that these are objects that can be described in three dimensions takes the better part of those two million years to actually create. So what it's all about is us bending our mind around challenges, around problems, around things that we want. Once our mind reaches the combinatorics of, let's say, seven plus or minus two in the short-term working memory, then we can theoretically hugely expand the complexity of the problems we're dealing with. But it nevertheless then takes a huge lot of time to actually develop the tools for thought to do that. And that is what happened after that period, when we have the natural capacity to think about more and more complex things, but we have to learn how to do it. And so I think a lot of what has been happening, let's say, over the last 100,000 years, and certainly the last 25, 50,000 years, is humans have learned to conceptualize more and more complex ways of looking at the world around them, whether it's in mathematics or in music or in feeding themselves, or in actually being as societies, all those things get hugely more complex. Because every time we see a problem, we try and find a tool for thought to get around it. And that then generates other problems. Is there a way to start adapting that capability? And in starting to wrap up the conversation here, yeah. is there a way to start adapting that capability of conceptualizing these more complex structures towards solving the issues in our society related to energy and materials that are causing the reasons why we aren't sustainable as a civilization? Of course, I don't know whether that is in reality possible, but let me use this then to highlight one more aspect of all of this. And that is the role of science and the fact that we have now for several centuries had a science that in order to establish itself and to create credibility has systematically always argued that you need to prove things that you're saying. Well, you can only prove things by relating what you observe in the present to what happened in the past and to thereby look at the process of how things generate that you have now. So basically what we've been looking in science mostly for is the origins of things that we observe. It's interesting that human cognition, when it works like that, that is when it has ex post position, it looks at origins, actually simplifies the process in order to come up with some form of causalities. It takes a process that has had many, many dimensions, and it simplifies itself in order to actually explain that process and put it in causal terms. Now look at yourselves. Suppose you fall in love. That's the example I use with my students because they're that, that age. When that is happening, there are very many new dimensions that are opening up. And you sort of look at that rather chaotically. You don't know what's going to happen next. After the affair is over, you can actually point out why it worked or why it didn't work, or you get better at it. So what you do is in the a posteriori perception, you actually simplify the many dimensions of the process that were going on. That has led us to this reductionist scientific view. If we want to better deal with our future, we need to reverse that process. Rather than simplifying by computer or in our minds, we should actually start thinking much more systematically in terms of risks, multiple scenarios, imponderables, all kinds of uncertainties. We should be 
not only learning from the past, but we should be learning for the future. And if we learn for the future, that means we learn in a very different way. Because that means that rather than look back to explain what we have now, we actually go back in the past and then try and explain what happened in the future. Or we stand where we are and we start predicting where we might be going in the future. And so we see everything as a form of many different possibilities. Our science is totally deficient in that sense, in looking at the future. And I would argue that that is one of the things we very strongly as a society need to develop. We need to find more scientific ways to be looking at the future because that will help us weed out the improbable from the probable, dictate or at least help us find out where to put our energies to achieve certain aims rather than simply explain how we got where we are now. In building off of that, how do we take that idea and actually start conceptualizing it and training the next generation of scientists, engineers, or even just citizens in general in that mode of thinking? Because our methods of higher education, and even before people get into institutions of higher education, are completely in that reductionist viewpoint that you were exactly. describing with its limitations. And so my, my argument is you've got to start with the kids when they're very, very young. You know, when they get to kindergarten, a kindergarten teacher has basically two dimensions of work that are at 90 degrees. On the one hand, they have to develop the individual children. On the other hand, they have to develop their sociality, that is their compatibility. The compatibility is a reduction of dimensions of action in the group as a whole. The stimulating all the individual kids is an enhancement of the dimensionality of the space in which that class finds itself. Most teachers go for the reduction because getting them socialized is important. Of course it is. But we could find a better balance in which we also looked more at their individual creativity. And then if you go further through education, we tell our kids all through school, this is the way it is. This is the causality that did this. What we should be doing is telling them, well, there have always been multiple options, and these are these options, and these are the ones that were chosen, and why were they chosen, and what is the effect of the fact that they were chosen against other options that were open but were not chosen. So I would argue for an education that opens that up, thereby opens up the creativity of people, and actually makes people much more aware of the uncertainties of the future, but also gives them ways of trying to deal with them. And we're looking at all of the issues, for example, in the European debt crisis or all of the problems with economies around the world, for example, and the Occupy movement rising up and so many revolutions around the world. And a lot of the anxiety around that comes from the reason, as you were saying, that many people are always given this picture of the world, given our social institutions in many ways as they are, instead of being able to see other possibilities. That's and so I'm wondering if you know of any examples from previous societies where social change occurred or previous societies that had better ways of looking at how to creatively design the way that their social institutions existed? Well, I don't know that I know that because it's, of course, on the basis of archaeology, very, very difficult to find evidence of that kind of thing. But the same Joseph Tainter in this book that I was citing gives a very interesting example, and that is the end of the Roman Empire, when in Western Europe, the whole empire falls flat because it doesn't have enough energy anymore to maintain its infrastructure. 
What happens on the other hand in the Byzantine Empire, that is the eastern half of the Roman Empire, they decentralize. They basically give more autonomy to people rather than less. And by giving more autonomy, they create more diversity, more innovativeness, and they survive another thousand years. That's an interesting example to think about. Do you think that there's a way that our society, which has been built around this process of centralization, could start thinking in decentralized ways, for example, in building urban resilience or some other process? I think we can think about that. I think we have the chance if we adopt a model initially for a part where we are not centralized, like Africa or parts of South America, and we then see the advantage of that and introduce that in our own society, of course we can. On the other hand, we are up against huge forces in the capitalist enterprise system that will try and prevent that. Ultimately, I believe that either we do it actively or it'll happen to us because I don't see there's any other solution. One of the privileges of being an archaeologist and looking over such a long time period is that you can see that in the nick of time, humans always manage to find solutions. Not always solutions that were immediately good, very often solutions that created other problems. The question is that, of course, for a very long time, if it went wrong on one place on Earth, you could start over in another place on Earth. And with globalization, that is getting more and more difficult. So I do think ultimately we will solve these problems, but there may, of course, in the process be substantive, what they call in this country, collateral damage, because I'm not sure that everybody will be able to sort of solve it at the same time and in the right time. So that closes out our conversation with Sandra Vanderloo about aspects of society and how it relates to innovation. And so there's a lot of different models of innovation that we use. And most people typically think of innovation in terms of silicon technology. They think of, you know, faster and faster computers, perhaps like the Ray Kurzweil definition of innovation and the speeding up of technology, how computers are getting ever more powerful and processing power keeps going up and up. And that leads people like Ray Kurzweil to think that we're headed towards this technological singularity where machines will actually gain consciousness. We'll have this super AI. But I don't know, what do you think, Seth? Are more powerful computing systems and more processing power in your pocket, in your smartphone, really solving the challenges that we're facing as a civilization today? Or are there other methods to innovate? Well, a lot of innovators, a lot of technology people talk about Moore's law, the ability to double the computing power every 10 years or so and exponentially. If you think about it, the last few decades have just been incredible. We, we started with computers that took up a whole warehouse and now the same machine fits in a microchip that's the size of your fingernail. 
and you can contact the, somebody on the other side of the world without any wires around you in the middle of nowhere, access machines and, and power technology that just was unthinkable 20 years ago. So in that arena, innovation has been the name of the game for, for a long time. And people have just become used to the fact that every few years, the technology is just going to double and triple and quadruple. And that you're going to have those AI glasses and you're going to have a robot sitting in your living room in a few years. It's going to talk to you and play games with you. And we need an editing troll on this show. So we, we might as well just get an AI that comes and, and does our editing for us. Right, Justin? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, after the singularity happens, we'll just be replaced with machine AIs. But yeah, I mean, most people are used to that idea of innovation where the iPad comes along and then you get an iPad 2 another year later and it's twice as fast and then you get an iPad with a retina display and it's super high resolution but I don't really see that any of those additional features high resolution or two and a half gigahertz versus two gigahertz or you know a faster Northbridge chip or bandwidth or whatever is really solving anything in terms of the problems that society's facing and like we've gone into with some of the previous interviews we've done on green illusions and techno fixes, I think one of the most interesting points that Sandra got to was the idea that there are certain moments in which the collective needs to innovate and the individual can no longer innovate. And that was when you asked him, Seth, about the genius factor. You know, what happens if this amazing genius like Einstein or somebody comes along and just blows open our current models and understanding of the way the world works? But what Sander was saying is there's actually points in history where the collective impedes that kind of innovation, where the laws and the collective ability really prevent those geniuses who come along with solutions to be able to change the way that society works. And I think a great example is even in the United States, let's say I came out with an app that just blew the lid off the world and was incredible, but because of patent law and because of all the laws that are associated with copyrights and such, I couldn't release it into the world, that innovation would be handicapped and stifled and who knows maybe it was groundbreaking or revolutionary but no one would ever know about it it's something that's interesting to think about with the genius factor is there's seven billion people on this world and how many einsteins are born every single day that we don't even know about because they have no access to a technology because there's no nothing to connect them to the outside world or b education nothing to nothing to, to stimulate their brains they're in countries where they have no access to the things that would could make them those the next einstein or the next, you know, big smart person that's going to be the next Bill Gates or the next Steve Jobs, that that innovation that we need to move people forward. It's interesting to think that if you gave that person an, an access to a library where they can actually develop their brains, that we could have that genius factor pop up where we would least expect it. Could they really go and have that genius factor if a lot of people are handicapped by corruption in their governments or fighting to survive in terms of hunger? I really don't know if just giving people access to education and information empowers them in a way that allows them to make a difference, even if they are really intelligent, because they live in such a faulty social system. I think it couldn't hurt if giving people in in these places that really have no access to education at all a chance to develop their minds. There's no way to even know if these genius factors are going to even have an effect on the world if you don't give them a chance. And that's the reason I think that technology really has a future in the world is because giving those kids that ability to innovate, to give those kids a chance to really develop something that that we previously would not have any chance to have developed. How many of those kids don't even get a chance to be the next Einstein because they've never had the opportunity to be exposed to it? 
that's a good point. But I also really liked what Sander had to say about how iron and the technology that went into ironworking had existed for, I think he said, a thousand years before it was really implemented. And the reason he said that it wasn't implemented is because the elites during that time period were very attached to the way that bronze was operating. It was a source of wealth. And so the technology for ironworking was very heavily suppressed. And so then once the elites fell away, that ironworking technology could be disseminated. And I really think that's a great example for what we're facing today. It's not that, you know, kids in developing countries need or don't need technology. They definitely need the ability to access more educational resources. And if they lived in better social systems, they could actually start applying these innovations. But what really needs to happen is all these different technologies that have already been developed really just need to gain the social systems that are needed to enable them. I don't even know if we need significant amounts of additional technological innovation in our world because we can do so much already. But the problem is it has to keep continuing because our economic systems say we need that new gadget out in six months to keep our economies growing. There are so many unbelievable innovations and ideas that are out there in the world that have been impeded because they're either counter to the way our economic systems work or the way that we're used to doing things in society. And as soon as Saunders said that analogy about the iron and the Bronze Age, it totally brought to mind central bank currencies and the way that our money is created. And yeah. when you see all the different ways that money can be created and abilities for value exchanges to happen between people, there's so many different effective ways that have been demonstrated throughout history that are equivalent to iron working technologies that people used to have but couldn't put into place. And once the current elites that are in charge of our societies and in charge of the way our money system works have passed on and have lost power, those methods of money creation and value exchange between communities can really flourish. That's very true, and you bring up some interesting points there. The ingrained power structure that, that holds the power right now doesn't want to lose power in a way that would let other people take over. It, when ingrained power structures exist, their whole point is to keep power for themselves and to, to keep that ivory tower in a way that, that holds power for themselves and doesn't spread it around. What you're talking about is allowing innovation to spread this power to the masses to allow people to develop humanity instead of keeping power in an elite kind of way. And that that's a very uh, innovative concept in itself because for the longest time in humanity, people have not wanted to have not wanted to spread knowledge. They've not wanted to allow these open source projects to develop. I thought that one of the really interesting points that Sander brought up about the information technology infrastructure that we use is how we're using it to build new communities of people who can actually belong together. That's what we were talking about towards the end there when we were discussing information technology. And I thought it was really fascinating because that's one of the goals of what we're doing with the show. And it's also one of the really amazing things about the internet that has made it such an incredible innovation when we can reclaim it from all the ads and all the cookies and all of the you know tracking for corporate purposes. It's actually allowing people to interface with others who want to work together and do absolutely incredible things on particular issues. And so That's I found true. that really cool. It's taking that old idea from the 60s and 70s of finding the others and making it a reality. It's actually allowing us to find the people that we do belong with in terms of working on really core issues to our species. 
this is what the internet is really powerful at doing is bringing like-minded people together into groups so that they can exchange ideas. You know, say a dog lover that also likes comic books and collecting stamps. There's another person out there that's just like you. They might live in, you know, the North Pole or in Bangladesh or something, but through the power of internet technology, now you two can get together and talk over Skype. Isn't that exciting? You could get together and start your very own podcast talking about those three things. It's true. And there's a lot of people that do that. But there's many other people who are actually working together on really, truly substantial things, the most challenging issues of our day on innovating around monetary systems. There's people who get together and talk about the issues that we're discussing. But that hasn't really become the majority use of the Internet right now. And even though (laughs) (laughs) more important than than talking about dog collecting stamps. Yeah, yeah, and watching cat videos and stuff. I mean, it's insane to see the number of people who will watch videos like that and will completely just not tune in when it comes to really core hard-hitting issues. But I think that the old model of innovation that we're used to where this company, you know, comes along, starts up, issues an IPO and then booms or gets bought out and uh, a lot of their innovation is based on silicon-based technologies – that model of innovation is going away with the limits to growth in conventional oil reserves and in non-renewable resources. And that old model of innovation isn't going to survive into the future because really, in my view, silicon te- technology is taking us about as far as we can go. Until we really change our social systems and the way that they work, then we're not really going to see the kind of solutions that we need implemented because a lot of those solutions already exist. They just face barriers towards implementation. I think and the next innovation of silicon technology is really going to be the making it cheaper i think that's really where it's going to go well you see these new raspberry pcs coming out for like 75 bucks you could have one of those everywhere i mean yeah give one of those to a little kid in 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 china and he could run an an internet site off of that thing yeah but his country's got to have enough money to pay the bills to run the electricity systems otherwise it doesn't really make any difference yeah and so that's that's what you see in China right now is there's giant piles of coal that are building up their ports because their economy's falling apart and their coal plants aren't burning coal and they aren't making electricity and so you know there's blackouts in villages and so you can give as many kids in developing countries that you want computer devices but if there's no electricity in their grid because their power companies are bankrupt because their country's bankrupt because of the monetary system then it doesn't make a lot of difference but yeah, i really think power to run those things But I really think that the future for innovation has to do with reducing the overall complexity that we're using. And one really fascinating metaphor that Sandra used was like falling in love. We we simply look back and see why it didn't work out after the love relationship's over. While you're in it, you don't really see the problems as they build up. But then after you get out of it, you're like, oh, I totally see why we broke up. There were so many (laughs) reasons why it didn't happen. I thought that was really interesting because it has a lot to do with the issues that we're that we're facing in society, especially among economic growth. All of the euro crisis and challenges in the U.S. economy are because we've been in a love affair with economic growth for 50, 60 years. And while we've been in love, it's just been so amazing and it solved all our problems and it's taken us places that we never thought we could go before without <laughs> it. And now that that affair has ended... Um, well, it, it turns out it had a lot of issues, and we can see why we've hit those problems. Yeah, all has along. A, she has a lot of baggage. That economic <laughs> growth model, huh? Yeah, 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 definitely. She brings all sorts of problems to the table. As long as you gave her <laughs> plenty of oil to drink, she just let loose. 
Yeah. So and so Justin, you're see, saying that we need to have a divorce with with our current model of economic growth. Yeah, yeah. We basically need to cut the ties with uh, economic growth and say, uh-huh. you know, we had a good run, but I think you can find someone better, like s- someone on Mars. They've probably got some resources that haven't been exploited yet. So anyways, Sander got back to what we hit on with a lot of our guests in terms of education and learning for the future, because right now we just learned for the past. And I really think that deep down, a lot of the reasons we can't face these issues as a society is because we've all just been educated so poorly. And that doesn't mean that we're not really sufficient and unbelievably adept at certain technological processes like, you know, using Excel spreadsheets or, you know, wiring things or learning specific packages of software. We know how to do that. But in learning how to think creatively about the future is something that we're really definitely not very good at and haven't been taught to do. And so, you know, that puts us in this precarious situation where we're at, where, you know, we're, we're facing a uh, 7 billion people on our planet and we can't really sustain this population with these resource flows and so Sander thinks that we're going to find innovations and we're going to innovate our way into the future but that we're not all going to do it at the same rate in every place and there will be pockets of people that get it and figure it out and there will be pockets of people that don't and that could be a sobering thought but you know, it means that there's all the more reason to focus on why the people that are going to figure it out are doing so and how to be part of those groups. Yeah. And how to be part of those groups is very important because if you're going to be the one that's innovating, you're going to be drawing those people to you like crazy. When everyone sees that you're working out and your system is the one that's succeeding, everyone's going to want to be a part of it. There's going to be a responsibility to what give tutorials on it to show people the way that this that your system's working to to give those to give those people uh, information so that they can start their own systems. Justin Sander talked about how much a average person in the West uses in electricity every every what every year. How much was that? Yeah, he said that in the United States we use ten thousand watts. And a typical human only needs 100 watts to survive. And that 9,900 additional watts goes into our infrastructure, into our information technology infrastructure, into our bridges, into the cars that keep us going and moving around all of these different places and into our agricultural systems that consume so much energy to produce the food that we use. And it's incredible the amount of energy that goes into our society that we don't even need just to exist as a biological system in our in ourselves. And that's not to confuse anybody that it's over any time frame because a watt is a rate unit itself. It's a joule per second. So if you see your light bulb and it uses a 100-watt light bulb, that's 100 watt hours every hour that you run that light bulb. And then you can break that into kilowatt hours, and that's what you get built on when you get your electricity bill. So that hopefully helps you visualize what 10,000 watts are. And the way that we've innovated in the past has always caused us to use more and more energy in the way that we typically think of in innovation. And so the challenge moving forward is finding ways to innovate that actually use less energy. I think permaculture is a great example of an innovation that helps us use less energy by going with natural flows and natural systems in the environment that have developed over a long period of time to use the energy in the environment in efficient and effective ways. But also there's going to have to be ways that we innovate as a society to use less energy. And when I was on Salt Spring Island here in British Columbia recently, I had a chance to sit down with two people who lived 
off the grid for 14 years without electricity. 14 years? Yeah, so I, I sat down with Amy and Larry at their home in Salt Spring Island to hear what it was like to live off the grid and then what it was like to come back onto the grid years later. We were off the grid for about 14 years in rural California. There's a lot of areas that don't have power. The uh, power lines hadn't gone to a lot of these rural areas. And the land was uh, subdivided and sold back in the 70s, early 70s, mid-70s. There was a big influx of people that came up from the cities to do a rural back to the, back to, uh, the country living lifestyle. And uh, the price of the property was very good and you could get a nice piece of very beautiful property. The only the caveat was that there was no um, electricity there. Uh, we started off with uh, kerosene lamps, you know, wood stoves. It was the early beginnings of the uh, photovoltaic uh, industry, and there were three companies in the little town of Willits, where, where we lived, that sold solar panels on a retail, a wholesale, and on a commercial level. There were three different businesses. So it was a hotbed of alternative energy and a lot of people from the whole earth catalog forward who were trying to find a different way to live. And we saw that the solar panels were an alternative and since we had no power at all, um, it still wasn't cheap. It was it was not a cheap in, investment for us, but it was, uh, it was an experiment. We started off with so, a couple solar panels and usually we started with our car battery actually. We had two batteries in our car. We ran our little household off with of the car battery and when we went to town, they charged them and we came back up. <laughs> they had a diode between them so it wouldn't run down both batteries so that you could always start the car in the morning. And then beyond, and then we progressed from there to getting a solar panel so that we could charge it and then built on and on and on, got batteries and then inverters and the whole thing. Trees which are some of our favorite days. We practically lived outside during those times. We had the propane cooking, and we spent a lot of time outside by the campfire. And in California, you can do that months and months and months of the year. It's not like Canada in that way where we could practically live outside. We slept outside a lot of the year. And we had the kerosene, but, you know, the long summer nights, we, we just didn't use a lot of power so at that time we didn't need a lot of power before that before i met larry i actually grew up in the woods but in a house with electricity but don't forget that was before like the age of technology so our life was pretty simple then too we weren't using a lot of appliances and things even in my childhood so i played outside all my childhood and i wasn't used to things that took electricity then either tape player batteries and i'd been to europe au pairing and saw all the little tiny appliances energy efficient systems and so anyway when we when i met larry and we went up there it was a very natural fit because i was at home in the outdoors it suited our philosophy we're simple people that way then our jobs changed things because we're both photographers and we needed power for the dark room and a place where people could come and the customers could come. So that started to change things for us. Some people 
people really did think that we were underprivileged or something and like except my mother she was like can't you just plug that into the car she she we both felt i think less vulnerable and more consistent in our lifestyle than the town which we could see from our property we saw the little village down below and literally we could see when there was a power outage because the town would go dark but our lifestyle didn't change at all and that was for us a, a better way to live to just have a consistency throughout the year we had our the wood stove for heat and we weren't used to using a lot of appliances or even lights so we didn't feel it when that was not around as much but in town when there was a big power outage there it was such a, a big deal newspaper headlines and people scrambling to try to manage their day-to-day -day again. Northern California is right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean, I mean, where we lived, and there's some radical storms that blow in there through the winter, and, and a lot of times, and it's very heavily wooded like here, limbs would come down, the power would go out all the time down in town. And literally, we wouldn't know it until we went to town and hear people talking about they were without power for two or three days. We didn't know it because didn't affect us. If you have only electric heat, that really can be dangerous if it's freezing. We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's the people who were the most vulnerable were the ones with only electric heat. And like here on Salt Spring, our biggest vulnerability is the fact that we have an electric water pump. And so we had a generator up there because that was also an electric water pump and water's the main thing you got to be able to pump water so Larry would go out there and get the generator going and I called it bloody knuckles on the generator that kind of <laughs> describes the 14 years because it sounds really great but it's hard too right it was not easy the initial setup of a, a solar system now is is expensive I mean, even back then it was, you know, for the full set with the enough solar panels, the batteries, the inverter, the backup generator and all that, it was about a $40,000 investment, which buys a lot of electricity if you have it there. We probably wouldn't have done that, but we had to. And um, the trade-off was that we got to live on this incredibly beautiful place. We lived on top of a mountain with beautiful views. I mean, it was isolated. It was a really, really, and it was a neighborhood too because we, were, we lived on 40 acres. Our neighbors had 40 acres. Our other neighbor had 80 acres. We all had on this subdivision, it was a neighborhood and it was a community. And yet we all had this in common that we were, we were off the grid and we were self-sufficient and uh, we were gardening. We had our own water supplies. We took pride in the fact that we were able to pull away because most of us came from big cities. I came from New York and um, that we were able to seek this dream of getting away from all of that and actually doing and succeeding at it. Yeah, it was difficult. I mean, in the middle of the winter, like Amy said, when, when you know, there's no, there's no sunlight, so the solar panels wouldn't work that well. I'd have to go out and start the generator sometimes, and I'd be out there in the cold firing that up. But, uh, you know, we had a nice cozy cabin, and we heated it with wood. We had our food, we had our little space and our little lights, and we even had a 12-volt color TV. <laughs> and, well, you know what? I, I, the word that comes to mind is independence, because when we're living like that, it's really all up to us, and that's a good thing, 
But when things don't go right, you don't have the guy to call on the helpline down there when there's a power outage or there's no gas for your, you call PG&E and somebody figures it out with you, charge you a whole bunch of money every month too. When you're living independently like that, there's a freedom, but with the freedom, there also comes like an equal amount of responsibility. It's all on you. And I found that made us extremely resourceful and we enjoyed it as much as we suffered for it. There's no save you will you go to a favorite place and sure enough when we moved down into town after that 14 years together up there the first thing i noticed was that i didn't want to grow things like corn in the garden because it costs so much money to just pay for water we weren't used to that so even though there's an initial investment of getting your system set up independently and off the grid over the course of time, you're also not going to be paying those big monthly bills. So eh, it kind of evens out. We had a wonderful well and a gigantic holding tank. But in town, immediately I realized, oh, I think I'll just grow a few of the expensive items and then get the rest from the farmer's market because we couldn't afford to water the garden with the things that take a lot of water like melon and corn. And then right after that, we had a gas um, system in the house for heat, natural gas, and a natural gas stove, and uh, of course electricity for the lights. And then there was this big Election. scandal. And I don't know if you know about that, when all the rates just skyrocketed, that was actually kind of a big deal, and a lot of people ended up going to jail over it. But before that happened, we and a lot of other people paid a fortune all of a sudden and we were we, we felt like hostages literally because the bill comes and if you don't pay it they can cut it off so talk about not independent anymore you don't pay the bill you don't have power or gas so that's a big difference from the life up on the hill that was the main difference i'd say So when we moved up here and I saw everybody was heating with electricity, I was shocked. But then I saw how little hydro charges for electricity. And I said, well, it's a deal here. Right now, I don't believe it'll stay that way. I mean, anybody who thinks that electricity is going to stay at, at the rate that it is now in the next 10, 15 years or even less is dreaming because it's going to go up. And I, the time is right now for people to start to move off of the grid and starting, you know, with passive solar. I think that's the big thing, biggest thing to do. So you can build a house, is build something that's passive solar. And then you don't need a lot of power to heat or cool your place. I'm uncomfortable actually being on the grid here too for all the similar reasons we talked about a few minutes ago. I know that the same thing could happen here. The rates can just go up and up and up. But the main issue is heating up here, I think, because we're cold a lot of the time and we have a wood furnace and we have some electric and we have a fireplace. So I think heat for me is the number one issue because I know that a lot of appliances aren't really necessary. So when we have power outage here, our number one issue is heat. We don't mind because of our history. We don't mind when we don't have the light. We can light a candle. 
we can visit, we can play games, we can go to bed early. We, we don't mind. It's not going to cripple us. Um, but the heat is a biggie. And I have to admit, I'm uncomfortable about the fact that my job requires use of the computer and internet. And now that everything is all hooked up to internet, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that we can't function work-wise without electricity. That bothers me, and I don't have that figured out yet. The school district up here is uh, one of the main reasons we came to Salt Spring Island in particular, because of the, the schools here, which have a four-day school week, which I know upset, uh, yeah, upset a lot of people. But uh, for Amy and myself and our kids, it was perfect because uh, they made that decision to cut back one day instead of cutting back the enrichment programs that they have here. And the high school has uh, fully funded drama, dance, music, culinary arts, an ecology school. It has an extra uh, performing arts section that operates within the school and outside of the school too, which uh, incorporates the three things, dance, drama, and music. Um, and that's what, our, that's what our, we wanted for our daughters when we came up here. We knew that um, the school thing that they could do, I mean, you can pick that up anywhere, really, and they, they could get that in California, but that's all they could have gotten. They can't get the enrichment that we got up here. education costs, wow. Yeah, it's just, all, yeah. college it's is a lot more affordable. should be still. <clears throat> I just don't understand how it's gotten so far from what makes sense where we're from because it's, it's such a great place, but things have gotten really far from sensible. And up here, there still is a focus on family and education and health. The basics, right? Those are like basics of a life. The water around here, the area is spectacular. The, the ocean being around us is a really wonderful thing. I talk to my friends up here and I say, it should be California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. Now, if you could marry the environmental laws of California with the culture and the values up here, I think that'd be a great match because both places have so many strengths. If you just merge them and cross-pollinate, it feels like um, there would be a, a great all, yeah. country, like well, that whole Pacific from, We band. all come from the same thing, which is the, the salmon run. So thanks to Amy and Larry for sitting down with me in Salt Spring Island to talk about what it was like to live off the grid. And for so many of us, we're used to the conveniences of modern appliances that just you plug them in and they take care of business. But here they are not having to use power to do their daily chores and they're used to it. And they actually said that when they came back on the grid, they felt like they lost such a level of independence. And they also said that one of the things about living off the grid is that you know you don't have that ability to just call somebody and take care of business. You really have to rely on yourselves and the people around you to take care of those challenges. And you know I think there's definitely something to be learned about taking on more self-sufficiency. That's true, Justin. And do you think that you could make that transition to living off the grid? I mean, I know that we, we couldn't do this show if you were living in a place where there's no electricity, but do you think that you could eventually make that switch into a non-electricity lifestyle? 
Well, I think a lot of us in the world are going to have to get used to using a lot less electricity. And I was reading、uh, about Japan today, where the electricity generation situation there is so dire that they're thinking of cutting off broadcasts between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. on television every day. So that means no more daytime shows. Wow. Really? Yeah. yeah. So they, they would have to just record it all on their computers so they could play it during that time with just over battery power or something. <laughs> or not record it at all. So no more soap operas if that's what's、ah, on. Damn it. During the day in Japan. I bet a lot of people are going to be sad about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think I could get used to using a lot less electricity or even going without electricity for three or four hours during the day. Like, you know, in a lot of countries, they have an afternoon siesta time. We just cut the power off. Everybody takes an hour nap and then boom, right back on, ready to go at it again. Cut off the power、yeah. for two hours a day.、It、saves a lot of pain. When I was in China, I was studying abroad in, in a little、uh, university outside of、uh, Shanghai, and they cut the power off every night at 11 p.m. Now, I don't know if this was to just budget the electricity or you know, to keep the kids in, in their beds. I know they lock the dorms as well. But、uh, they definitely budgeting electricity in that way. They didn't use anything after that time. No, no power in the dorms after 11 o'clock. Yeah, in a, in a lot of other countries, they are used to the fact that they don't have 24 7 electricity like we're used to in the modern world. And even the crisis in Greece is showing that the electricity grid is on the verge of falling apart because the Russian natural gas and energy provider, Gazprom, Is expecting to get paid back from Greece for some back bills on their energy. And Greece is running out of money. They may not have the money to pay them. And so it's very possible that in the next few months, in the next six months, or even the next year, that the national electricity grid in, in the entirety of Greece or most of Greece could go down for you know, a few days or weeks or even a very long term if the country runs out of money entirely. And that's crazy to think that a developed nation that Was used to having 24 7 electricity could very quickly go to a point where they have no electricity on their grid. How does a country support a expanding economy when there's no electricity in their country? Yeah, exactly. And that's it why we, it, it can't, it's impossible to happen. And so that's why I think that in the future, as we're more constrained for electricity in North America, as is quite possible in the very near term future due to debt issues and problems with maintenance and also global constraints on fuel supplies, as one of our future guests talked to us about peak coal, which he really sees happening、uh, around 2020 or so. That's dramatic, a huge change. That if you want to read more about, there's excellent books out there like Blackout by Richard Heinberg. Where you know, you're talking in as little as eight years,、um, the United States could very much be facing a situation where there's not enough coal to burn and the power isn't on 24 7. And that's not even 10 years away. Well, the power is on right now, and you're listening to our show over power. So we're very thankful for that to be the case right now.、Uh, wherever、yes. you are, I'm sure the power is on because you've managed to download the episode somehow. And we're very, very thankful for that. We wanted to thank some of the people who have sent us some of their money to help us fund some things that we have going on here at the Extra Environmentalist. We wanted to send out our thanks to Steve, Sustainable Steve, in the Northern Territory of Australia. Australia. And we actually sent Sustainable Steve 
some stickers and as well as the other what like nine other people here on this list here that i've sent stickers out to so all you people who have sent money above ten dollars you should have stickers coming to you in the mail and we really want to see those stickers on things and we've had stickers going out all around the world all across the united states the east and the west coast but also to simon in norway yeah how do you say the name that ever where he's from i'm gonna try but it's gonna be terrible seljord vegan I apologize for butchering your <laughs> language, Simon, but many thanks for your donation. And yeah, thank so, you so much, Simon. <laughs> yeah, and it's so awesome to send some stickers up to Norway. And all of those donations we are putting back into the show to help improve the quality of our interviews. And we've got some exciting things that we're going to try with some of our upcoming guests in terms of making sure that we get some really high quality recordings of the interviews that we'll be talking about on a future episode. And like Justin has talked about in the, some of the previous episodes, we've actually gone above and beyond sending stickers to just those people who are sending us $10 as donations over PayPal. Uh, we actually sent out some stickers to one of one of our guests because of the generosity of those people who have sent above and beyond that requisite number that we we had said. So Vincent in California, be on the lookout for some stickers coming to a mailbox near you. Yeah, and we're going to use all of those donations that are well above $10 to fund shipping stickers to everyone who's donated previously in the last few months. And then we're going to ship stickers to people who just write in and say that they want some stickers, but they don't have the money to spare at the moment. And so if anyone donates more than $15, $20, something like that, we'll use that extra money to fund shipping some more stickers around to the world. But we've also been hearing from some of our reporters in the field. That's right. Or a in, special... in a field. <laughs> Let's go to our favorite in the field reporter. Hey, guys, it's Quasi Periodic coming from behind the wheel. I think you should totally give T-shirts to your... Uh field correspondence, for sure. I wanted to clarify the thing about the book breakthrough from the end of environmentalism to the politics of possibility. The point that they make and cite heavily is, is that it requires a state of comfort, affluence, being near the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, that's basically their point, is that people need to be comfortable in order to achieve the expanded state of mind Raha or whatever you want to call it, uh, to think, to see the whole planet as a family. But yeah, I posted something on the Serums Facebook page about it. It's just, my concern is that you got to take Africa, for example. You're not going to achieve an environmental consciousness there until they're out of a state of fear. Uh, same goes for Southern Baptists. And the problem that I see from out here in the field is that we're just encircled by fear. We are made to be non-self-sufficient and just insufficient in every way to help our capitalism. The thing is that it starts from the field. Like Daniel Quinn says, when they locked up the food, suddenly everybody was dependent. At the time, people could still just walk away from the society. Thanks for calling in and giving us the latest report from the field, quasi-periodic, and that was a really great point about, I think, why the environmental movement has not caught on as a mass movement in society is it's been so fear-based, it does scare people. And I think there's a lot of us who are capable of engaging with these issues, but there's so many people who aren't simply because of the fear that's generated. And so I really do hope that movements like Degrowth that paint this positive vision of what life can be like that is also ecologically responsible 
can catch on. And despite some of the issues that you may have heard about at the Rio Plus 20 conference, there's a really great thing that people there are working on called the Future We Want. And you can find this Future We Want campaign at futurewewant.com. And you can see how people in the environmental movement are starting to build this concept of a future that we actually want to live in. And I think that even though the campaign has its same challenges of, you know, showing everything with super fancy, shiny solar panels on everything and also everything looking like it's from a 1970s sci-fi movie about some future space colony, there are some definitely positive aspects to visualizing the future that we actually want rather than one that's been devastated by rising flood levels and constant tornadoes because of climate change. Fear is a great motivator and it makes people think about their lives and it makes them feel a lot of emotion towards a lot of things, but it can also be very detrimental. It can be just not very fun to hang around with a lot of fear. There's a yeah. lot better motivators than fear and humans have are, are not only motivated by that they're motivated by a lot higher causes they're motivated by compassion it doesn't have to be fear absolutely yeah. and and judy krishnamurti who we play clips from on our show he writes quite a bit in his books about how in the presence of fear there can be no intelligent response and so until we really gain some courage and face up to those fears within ourselves we can't really develop these intelligent solutions that we need and methods of dealing with fear are going to be a really important innovation, innovations like we've talked about on today's show and on our Extra Environmentalist blog. Um, one of our recent posts on the Extra Environmentalist blog uh, from one of our listeners and friends in Germany, in Aachen, Germany, Matt, he wrote about ways that some of the future innovations in the tech sector could potentially deal with these global challenges that we talk about in terms of dealing with the end of uh, cheap oil and helping to connect people locally. And how can people find more Extra Environmentalist blog posts, Seth? People can find more of our Extra Environmentalist blog posts by visiting our blog at www.extraenvironmentalist.com blog. And these blog posts are curated by our lovely Extra Environmentalist editor, Louisa, if you have a blog post that you want to get out there, it circles around these kind of themes that, and you have a really interesting message that you want to put out there to the world, the Extra Environmentalist blog would love to have your article. If you want to find more episodes such as the one that you're listening to now, actually 43 other episodes plus extra bonus content, you can check out our Extra Environmentalist website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can check us out on Facebook where we have all sorts of conversations going. And we're well over 500 likes, Justin, which was our goal in the last episode. So let's give a big hand to all those people out there who helped push us over that 500 mark. People can also check out our Twitter where we are putting out all sorts of tweets about these kind of issues, about our thoughts and articles and things that we read and you know things like that. You can go over to X Environmental on, on the Twitter sphere find us out there if you don't like downloading podcasts and you prefer to just use a app to get these episodes you can head over to stitcher download their free app and we are on stitcher radio where you can find us we are on all sorts of terrestrial radio stations all over british columbia and canada where you can find us and hear us if you think that we blabber on too much and if you just want a one hour listen you can find a radio broadcast on CITR here in Vancouver, on CJMP in Powell River, and soon to be other affiliates because we were very, very fortunate to receive the award from the Canada National Community Radio Association 
of the best syndicated radio show in all of Canada, Community Radio. So thanks so much to the NCRA for selecting us for that award. And, you know, I sent them our Ponzi the Clown skit, so apparently a lot of people like that. (laughs) Yeah, Ponzi the Clown, an endearing character who may make a return in the future. If you'd like to join up the Extra Environmentalist, just a plain old email. You can always find us at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. If you've missed any of these ways to get in contact with the Extra Environmentalist, you can always go over to Google, just type it in, Extra Environmentalist, you'll find us. And yes. make sure you tell your friends about us. Make sure that you're spreading these the word about the Extra Environmentalist to your teacher, you know, your principal to your high school, your math teacher, your masseuse, your mechanic. Thanks to everybody who's been shooting us regular plain old emails. So once again, thanks so much to Kevin for production assistance. Kevin from Sustainable Guidance. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kevin. We couldn't do it without you. You're you're really freeing those trolls. And to all you extra environmentalists out there, thank you once again for listening. And to all you Nigerian princes out there, keep sending us your bank account information. We love you. innovation, if you look at it, is bound by these creative constraints that you put on yourself. It's the basic fundamental building block of all economics is that we are selfish. What happens if you turn that around and say, well, actually, maybe people want to be selfless? We, we then looked at it. We had a very interesting thing happen. There was a dot-com that went belly up. And when it went belly up, they came to us and they said, hey, can you keep our product alive because it's doing a lot of civic good? We said, sure, we'd be happy to. We can try. We were a bunch of volunteers. We didn't know if we could actually run an organization like that. In three months, we doubled all their numbers. We scratched our heads and we said, oh man, we got institutional capacity. We could do stuff. So then we said, well, what should we do? Well, we should do what no one else is willing to do. Like what? Well, we should do things that, like good news. CNN doesn't put any good news, but if you don't have good news in the world, you're constantly going to be stuck in the fear narrative. Why doesn't CNN have good news? It's very hard to monetize. Then we said, well, maybe there's other things, right? So we started a portal for good news, and then we said, well, what about kindness? Again, very hard to monetize. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have systematic efforts to promote that kind of stuff in the world. So we started a portal to do that. And we started a whole bunch of different projects, and then at some point we said, why not go offline? What happens if you run a restaurant in this way? What happens if you run a rickshaw in India in this way? What happens if you run an art magazine in this way? In this way, by which I mean the power of generosity, the power of inner transformation. An average American sees 3,500 ads a day, mostly unconscious, unconsciously. So 3,500 ads a day that are telling you you are incomplete as you are, you need my product, you need my service, before you can be complete. So it's very hard to come out of this consumption conditioning, but what if we flip it? What if we open each door and say, what can I give? Instead of saying, what can I get, what can I give? If you start with that, it really changes the whole game. When you move from transaction to trust, you really start to rely on our interconnectedness in a very deep, profound way. When you go from isolation to community, you start to cultivate this network of gift ties. 
And when you move from scarcity to abundance, you really start to discover your gifts and, and start to experience this generative power of gratitude. But it's not just reserved for the Gandhis and the Mother Teresas and the Dalai Lamas of the world. In the bottom right over there is this man that most of you may not have heard of. His name is Julio Diaz. Everyday Joe. He, takes, he lives in New Jersey. Every day he takes the subway back home. And one day he's getting off, and this kid comes up to him with a knife, and he says, give me all your money. He says, okay, well, here's my wallet. Gives it to him. Kid's about to run off, and then he yells out at the kid, hey, kid, it's a little cold. Do you want my jacket too? The kid's blown away. He hadn't learned this in Robbery 101, so he comes back. <laughs> and he says, hmm, okay, yeah, all right. But now when he comes back, very different energy. Right? They start to connect. They start to bond. And Julio says, I'm about to go have dinner. Do you want to join me? Also not in Robbery 101. <laughs> so they go to dinner, and they have this profound conversation. At the end of dinner, Julio says, I'd love to treat you, but you have my wallet. <laughs> so the kid naturally takes out his wallet, gives it back to Julio. And at that point, Julio says, can I ask for one more thing? Can I have your knife too? And very easily, very naturally, he gives it back to him. Julio tapped into that spirit of inner transformation, says, this is not a guy who is taking stuff from me. I just want to blow him away. And that capacity blew him away with generosity. Underneath that generosity is an inner transformation. And once we tap into that inner transformation, all kinds of new possibilities are available to us. On the next Extra Environmentalist, Michael Linton, developer of the Let's Currency System. Our conventional economy wants us to breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, breathe in, get some more in there, breathe some more. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all one directional. And then you turn around and spend, spend, spend. Uh, it goes the other way, but the impetus is always on this urgency, the necessity, the, the carrot and stick economy. Well, inside a community currency, the carrot is very gentle and the, the stick is soft as it's nothing. You know, there is no coercion. And when there isn't coercion, compatibility, conviviality show up. The world changes. People, people are more generous, not just with their spending, but with the services they provide when people spend on them. So if I'm doing your garden or fixing your roof or something, I'll probably do a better job when you're paying me in community money than when you're paying me in federal dollars. When I heard about the empty building in the middle of Wall Street, I knew there was an opportunity to be had. 
After the crash of the financial markets, the huge gap left by the departing stockbrokers left a huge hole in the New York skyline, as well as the New York hearts and minds. What was left behind was a large building full of empty spaces, empty hopes, and empty dreams. The trading room floor echoed with the shouts of traders who have departed. Welcome to This New American Life, coming to you from WBXE. Today we devote the entire show to Gus Arthurton, the man who's literally rebranded Wall Street. When I signed up to meet the hottest new face behind Wall Street, I didn't realize I'd be talking to somebody who had so much experience in cattle farming. I've been doing this cattle business for years and years. My grandparents and my grand great great grandparents were all cattle farmers, so it was an easy step for me to get into the business of cattle farming. Gus had been doing this for a long time, and when he found out about the financial crash from his cattle farm in Wyoming, he took all of his steers and steered them across the entire country until he reached Manhattan in New York City. He took a dead stock market and turned it in to a livestock market. When I heard about the empty building in the middle of Wall Street, I knew there was an opportunity to be had. I knew that everyone was going to want some livestock, and I knew just the thing to do. I was going to bring my cattle across the United States and shack them up right here in downtown New York City. New York, New York, a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery. But why would a cattle farmer in Wyoming suddenly think, I'm going to downtown Manhattan to sell my cattle, Gus explained. Well, you see here, there's all these little nooks and crannies where the cows can go hide. I just throw a little bit of grass down, and they're right at home. It seems that livestock really do lack the stock market. When Gus first showed up in downtown Manhattan, at first everyone started saying hey, and then they actually started giving him hay for his steers. When he arrived at Wall Street, everyone started feeding him all the fresh straw because they knew that this was where the city was going to get its food. They knew that this was the rebirth of downtown Manhattan that had been hollowed out. They just started handing me hay. I walked in one day and there was a bale of hay just sitting there. I was mystified. It turns out that when all the people on the stock trading floor lost their jobs and they no longer had any kind of financial institution to support themselves, a lot of them moved into the countryside and started growing grains and wheat. And when they heard that a steer farmer was coming to reestablish their old business place, they came back in mass and brought lots of hay with them. One of the most successful traders on Wall Street year in and year out was Stanley Platypus, and he told us about the transition. Well, it seemed to me that there was a market opening up, and uh, I'm never one to shy away from markets. When I saw Gus moving into the downtown building, I knew for sure that he was going to need some feed for his animals. I knew right away that was a market I was going to exploit. And Stanley, what was it that made you suddenly rethink free markets and turn them into feed markets? It seemed to me a logical jump from the exploitation of people to the exploitation of animals. Now, I'm never one to uh, be cruel to any sort of living creature, but uh, boy, they taste good. But Stanley wasn't the only banker I talked to. I talked to a lot of people who used to be bankers, and a lot of them had moved into the farmlands around New York City, and they'd been doing pretty well. A lot of people were apparently very hungry. So to find out what more bankers thought, I thought I'd go to the Bank of America Eco Village, literally in the banks of the Hudson River. Lots of former bankers and traders moved there because they recognized the name. Samaya Basmati was the founder of the Bank of America Eco Village, and after she lost her day job, 
in Midtown Manhattan, she started the Bank of America Eco Village because she knew a lot of former bankers would want to live with people that thought like them in managing the transition. It seems that people here really have gotten in touch with their physical and spiritual energies. They've moved away from the deep thoughts about money and really have found a spiritual place within themselves. I haven't heard any of them speaking about money in about 10 days, which is really a long time for these guys out here. But Samaya, do you think that Gus starting a livestock market where the stock market used to be has really steered all of your bankers in a different direction? The banking system has flipped on its head now that all these bankers have realigned their cheese and understood the magical properties of what it means to live sustainably. No longer is banking the primary objective for many of these men, which is so wonderful because who really wants to be a banker anyway? So it was great finding out that all the former bankers were finding a new life for themselves, even though they'd left Wall Street behind. But with the new livestock market, where the stock market used to be, how did Gus even get across the country? Wyoming is several thousand miles away. I don't even know how he got out there. Gus explained his trip. We started on the highlands and made our way east across the great states. We found that highways were the best places to take cattle. Flat, open, lots of space to roam, and plenty of grass on the sides and the medians for the cattle to make their way. They enjoyed the flowers a whole lot. When we found our way into New York City, the people there were a little bit surprised to see us. What are you doing here, they said. Well, I'm here to take over the Wall Street building. I bought it, and that's where I plan to stash these cattle. He brought all of his hundreds and hundreds of cattle all along with him from across the country, and it took him only a year and a half. But it turned out that his biggest fans were the people who were selling hot dogs on the street. We hit up a relationship with the hot dog selling carts right away. They said that they'd buy heads of cattle right from the lot. I wasn't one to turn them down. I need all the customers I can get. They would buy cattle, slice them up, and hot dogs would be pouring out before I could say Jiminy Cricket. And Gus, some of the food cart drivers actually started driving your steers. They actually made food carts on top of your steers. How did the cows feel when suddenly their family members were being sold off their backs? Well, that's a great story there. These these fellows walked up and said, Hey, can we buy one of your cows? We want to use them as transportation. Now, I had never heard of such a thing as using a cow as a transportation, but I wasn't one to turn down an entrepreneurial spirit. So I sold him the cattle right there, and away he went. I think that uh, he called the cow Lucy or Betsy or something, pulling his hot dog cart all around. I suppose after the cow's done pulling... He's just going to make it into some hot dog meat and keep the profits rolling. And with that one move, Gus transformed the entirety of Manhattan from a graveyard of financial crash to a bustling farmyard of numerous animals. Soon after, chickens, goats, pigs, everybody moved in once they heard Gus's story. It was an incredible thing to watch, the transformation of Manhattan by one man, Gus Atherton. So that ends the story of Gus Atherton, told by our fantastic news correspondent, Mike Brownsworth. And for us here at WBXE, thanks so much for listening. And from our boss, Mr. Frank Grayberry, 
who, when we asked him if we're all going to get raises, said, I haven't heard any of them speaking about money in about 10 days, which is really a long time for these guys out here. 